And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's hump day. It's hump day. It means Wednesday. Wednesday means smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth means Bruce Anderson. Ah, yes, hump day. Halfway through the week. Uh, You got me. Hey, what did you say? Can we call it something else? You don't like hump day? Well, you know, it's all right. Uh, But it sort of, I sort of equate it with like, oh, the week, this is the hardest part of the week, the hardest day of the week, the the day that everybody kind of dreads because it's, it's not, you're not fresh at the beginning of the week. You're a little bit tired. You can't quite see the end of the week anyway. Well, I think that's the whole point of hump day is like you're over the hump. You're it's all, you know, kind of downhill to the end of the week now. All right. I'm just going to stop whining about it and uh, we'll just call it hump day and we'll make the best of it. All right. Well, let's. What do we got to talk about today? Well, you know, we can't. The things that we texted each other about. I think that's what we should do. Um. Okay. But we, you know, we were back and forth right. texting on a, a variety of different things. I, I don't think we can start with anything other than what the hell is going on up there? Like, what, what do we know? Ten days after the first one of these things was shot down, what do we know now that we didn't know then? The Martians, the whole Martians thing. The Martians yeah. thing. Well, look. It is, you know, you've got to admit, it's pretty bizarre to have had a situation where from the White House podium, they're saying, it's not UFOs, <laughs> it's not Martians, it's not, you know, something from another planet. Did you ever think you'd hear that day, other than in a, you know, in a movie? Well, I... I- no, I don't think that I did, but I also didn't think I would hear a military officer, a senior ranking military officer in the United States say he couldn't rule out anything, <laughs> including that these were from another planet. Uh, so, no, it's quite bizarre. And, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that people are paying a lot of attention to it. It feels like something that we should be attentive to. I am at the same time. You know, so aware uh, following this story of how short our patience is for information uh, when something happens, when anything happens, really. Everybody wants to know immediately, tell me everything that there is possible to know, and also just give me a a flood of speculation if there isn't a lot of fact. (laughs) And maybe that happens more on, on Twitter. Uh, than everywhere else. But I think it's part of the general syndrome that we live with today, which is that if something happens, we, we're we not accustomed to waiting five or six days for more information to be developed and then to come to us. We really do want to know it now. Um, and so I find myself uh, a little bit trapped by that too. I'm like, well, how long has it been since that debris landed in the various places that it landed and how you know, if it's taking too long for them to tell us what the debris looks like, is that because there's something they don't want us to know? So I find it fascinating as an exercise in understanding how our collective psychology works in the in the time that we live in, with the pace of our expectations. But 
from a political public policy standpoint, I think my guess is that that well, my guess is one thing has happened uh, based on some of the information that has come out, and my observation is that the system that we have to defend ourselves or identify threats and then defend ourselves is probably working pretty well. And by that, I mean that in the first instance, it sounds as though the NORAD people who are talking are saying, well, maybe one of the things that's going on is that we've opened the aperture. We've made it easier for us to spot things that invade our airspace by kind of changing the threshold of how big they are or something like that before they are noticeable to us with our tracking devices. In which case, the corollary of that is there have been maybe many of these things and we just didn't know that they were there before. I think there's reasons, obviously, why people in those situations in those roles might not want to say that, but it seems like that might be part of what's going on here. That doesn't make it any less uh, anxiety-causing or worrying or you know it, something that needs attention. And then the other thing is that I'm watching this debate, and I'd love to know what you think about it as well, about whether um, Canada is sufficiently prepared to defend its sovereignty um, or not. And some of the spe- some of the arguments that you hear um, that suggest that we're not are that an American fighter jet shot down one of these, or maybe more than one of these um, these things, whereas. I kind of look at it and I go, well, the whole idea of NORAD is that we work collectively on on identifying those threats and dealing with them. And this seems to me like a, a pretty good real-life example of NORAD doing what it's supposed to do. What, what do you make of it all? Are you, uh, uh, are you kind of like, where are these craft coming from? Is it <laughs> outer space? Is it Russia? Is it China? What do you, what do you make of it? Well, How would you handle it as a news story, too? How would I handle it as what? As a news story. As a news story. I like, think it's a good news story. Let's say you know what you know, and tonight is the first show, and you're giving, you know, yeah. you're crafting that kind of opening Well, you know, segment. to me, news is always, you know, putting things in, in some degree of context, right? This is not the first time that, you know, uh, these countries have spied on each other. Let's assume it's China versus the U.S. on this. Um certainly Mm -hmm. seems to have been the case on the very first balloon, the big one, the one the size of four buses. Um, Chinese sort of said it was theirs, right? Yeah, Yeah. they they admitted it was theirs, and it was off course. And, you know, these these things can happen that could go off course. I mean, if you're trying to hide a spy balloon (laughs) that's the size of four buses that's flying around at whatever it was, 60,000, 70,000 feet, it's pretty hard to hide that okay you're gonna see it it was seen from the ground by like people <laughs> not using binoculars just they could see it so obviously you kind of know it's there latest iphone right pick it up yeah now, the chinese say the americans have, have done the same kind of thing the americans deny that but look let's not kid ourselves for the last 60 70 years the Americans have been spying on everybody. You were you're old enough to remember Francis Gary Powers, you know the U two pilot. I mean, he was flying his uh, his U two over Russian airspace for, for for spying. You know, he's taking pictures. Well, that's what this thing was apparently doing, or taking readings, or measurements, or something. Um, 
as far you know so th- this didn't suddenly start happening yesterday this has happened and it, it happens from any number of different countries do it to each other they've been doing it literally for centuries in terms of balloons um the japanese used balloons against the americans in the second world war trying to start forest fires on the west coast and they did it, the same thing you know launch the balloon and and the air currents will take it across the pacific and you know hit either bc or washington state or oregon or wherever by the way i'm loving this opening item on the news that you're doing now because it is giving us context and I haven't seen that context, what you're just describing, in any of the other coverage. So oh, good, you know, carry on. You know, I mean, it's I, a bit I, of a long item so far, but yeah. where, where is it going? Well, I think people love this story, right? You can't miss with this story. Um, I think the story has changed pretty dramatically over the last 10 days. Uh, and I'll get to that in a sec. But first, on, on your question about NORAD, I mean, I think... You know, we don't know what we don't know, as the old saying goes, and I think we probably will find out in due course that the Americans and the Canadians are tracked that first balloon. It didn't suddenly go, oh, my God, what's that over Montana? I think they knew where it was coming and probably thought what it was, some kind of weather balloon that may also be used for spying, which they all do to each other. But it was a balloon, okay? It wasn't like a Bomark missile or whatever. The, the cruise missile or something you know it was a balloon um so i imagine it was tracked as it came over alaska and went down the west coast of the, uh, of canada and then into um you know the states and then uh, and then the current started pushing it straight uh, eastward um and then they had to decide okay we you know there's so much fuss about this we got to take it out and let's take it out of the right place uh so that's my that would be my uneducated guess on what happened there um NORAD operates, as you said, the two countries together. That has been the whole idea behind NORAD. You go, um, you, you have a joint command and at different times, different countries in charge. Right now, the American general is in charge of NORAD and the Canadian is at number two. And those positions can reverse at different times. Uh, but the final decision on the kill shot um, when not made by the president or even made by the president, is then made by the whoever's in charge. Um, why didn't the Canadian jet take out either the... Well, it, it didn't take out the first one because it was over the Carolinas or wherever it was. I don't think either Canadian jets were even involved at that point. This is the one over, uh, uh, you know, a Yukon, that is kind of a question mark. Now, the Americans have a base in Alaska. It was a you know, hop, skip, and a jump from uh, where they took it out. Where the closest we are with fighter jets is Coal Lake. So Coal where Lake, the, right? where the yeah. Canadian jets were at that point, I'm not sure. They say they were all together up there. Whether the Canadian jets were armed with missiles to take it out, I don't know. Those questions haven't been answered. There are times when the CF-18s, they, they can all be armed, but they're not necessarily armed on some of those flights. So there are, you know, there are questions that haven't been answered yet. But NORAD, it basically worked, right? Now, I'm a little, I'm a little more confused about the one over Lake Huron. Because if you track that back, it probably came straight over the Arctic and straight down. 
through really uninhabited space and there weren't people on the ground going, hey, what's that? <laughs> you know, uh, and they didn't see it until it was over Lake Huron. You look at a map, you can kind of track where that might have come. I don't know where it came, how it came down, but it could be. It was more <clears throat> center of the continent uh, as opposed to the west coast of the continent. Um, so that's kind of a question mark, and then why the Americans ended up shooting it down when it was over the Canadian side of Lake Huron. I don't know. At some point, these questions will be uh, will be answered. The bigger question is, were they all Spanish satellites? First one almost certainly was. There was certainly Chinese, and they were surveilling something. And it wasn't just weather patterns. Um, the other ones now, they seem to be kind of leaning towards, well, you know, maybe they were commercial. Maybe they were benign. Maybe they had nothing to do with another country. Maybe they were with a university or some private company doing, you know, weather-related stuff. Um, those are all possible. It's much smaller, uh, much lower. <clears throat> I'm Sorry. I haven't heard that, and I don't know what the, you know, all I've heard is uh, the they don't have some propulsive capacity, and I'm kind of like, well, how do they stay aloft? What, you know, what, so I'm really curious about those ones as well. Um, oh, you're leaning towards, you're leaning to, like, I can see it, you're leaning towards the, they came from another planet. No, that's what, that's what actually, no. Oh, I can see no, it now. I did see somebody make the comment. E. That, where are you? Of course, it makes sense that um, incredibly superior beings from uh, that could travel light speed to get here would do that so that they could put these kind of Volkswagen-sized things floating in the sky around us, these rather unsophisticated things that have no ability to defend themselves against our uh, frail human fighter jets. Uh, so that all seems silly to me. Um, You've been doing too much polling on conspiracy the, theories. Uh, I, look, I'm in the school of... <clears throat> I think the... Officials are probably very, very impatient themselves for information about this, and they're probably asking every hour, and they're going to get information. And I don't know whether they're going to tell us everything. And this is the other interesting point of discussion. And I heard in the way that you characterize this, uh, your background as a journalist, saying, well, you know, there are questions about why American Jet shot it down over the Canadian part of Lake Huron, was it? Huron. Um, and... The non-journalist part of me is like, there's a whole great category of things I don't care if I ever know about, um, because the truth is probably going to be somewhat more mundane than your speculation might be. But on the other hand, if we didn't have journalists being a little bit more suspicious, then we wouldn't have good journalism. So I see the balance there, and I uh, I applaud your uh, enduring skepticism and suspicion that you might not get all of the information. And for me, I'm like, I'm going to wait until it transpires that they have things to tell us. And maybe they'll tell us everything, and maybe they won't. And if they don't, maybe that's okay, too. Yeah, no, there may be a very good, good reason not to tell us everything. You know, they, uh, yeah. and it could be a while before that information, if ever, is is shared the the uh, just to to calm your fears that i was kind of making stuff up um 
They did say yesterday <laughs> from the podium, they did do, do this commercial or benign uh, looking increasingly like that for the, for the latest ones, the, the three little ones, the, the Volkswagen size, whatever they were um, at a much lower altitude. I mean, listen, there's a lot of stuff up there. There's a lot of Girl. junk in space. There's a lot of stuff that, well, not a lot of stuff, but there is stuff that does fall from space at different times. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, like just stuff up there, private space junk. Yeah, like uh, lower than space junk, but sort of out there. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I I think it's one of those stories that has that people have latched on to because it appeals to any number. They, it it appeals to their fears of uh, of the climate out there, the international climate. It appeals to their, you know, uh, belief to some degree of, you know, uh, another other worldly objects that are that, that that could be coming down to look at us. You know, it appeals to a lot of things, especially at a time when we're looking for other things to think about and talk about and be fascinated by. Um, is there a safety issue here? Increasingly, it seems there is not, other than the possibility of something crashing into an airliner which is that would be a problem um i i do think your question about and i'm sure those responsible are looking heavily at this uh about where norad is after decades of of it being uh present how sophisticated is it now how able is it now to deal with situations like this i mean just last you know, a year and a half ago, the U.S. and Canada announced because of the Arctic that they were going to, you know, upgrade things on the NORAD front. I don't know where we are on that, but I mean, look at a map. It's a big space. A lot of stuff can happen there without anybody knowing about it. And yeah. how, you know, how are we going to deal with that in today's world? You know, do the F-35 solve Not this? Just the, I know. And the terrestrial side of that too. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I don't think the F-35 solved this in any way, but hey, who am I? Uh, we'll, see, we'll see as uh, time goes on and how governments you know, re- respond to it, both the Americans and, and, and the Canadians. I think there are, there are questions here uh, that uh, still need to be answered. And uh, you know, we'll see whether it just kind of drops off the news agenda as things do, you know, some other well, shiny the other object thing I'm, comes I'm in. I'm kind of anxious about is to see what the Republicans in the U.S. do with this. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, so far they've been taking a bit of a more laid-back approach uh, than they do on many issues. But I'm worried that we're going to see Donald Trump uh, intervene in this conversation in ways that um, kind of shape public opinion in a way that he thinks is favorable to him, but it may not have much to do with the facts. So uh, I guess we'll stay abreast of that story. Um, but uh, we have other things to talk about today, too. Yeah, I'm not sure how what well we he can a- interfere with it. I mean, there are apparently there were occasions where the same kind of satellite as the first one or balloon or whatever the heck it was. Uh, there were at least three occasions that it happened during the Trump years and they did nothing. And maybe doing nothing was the right approach. I don't know. It'd be, it would seem odd if he took that 
view. I did the right thing. I did yeah, nothing. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you um, Okay, what else do you want to talk about? Well, I think we should talk about this John Tory situation in Toronto, and I think we should talk about Doug Ford and the integrity commissioner and the and the party that developers came to and, and brought money for his family. So you want to go deep into uh, Ontario and Toronto politics then, right? <laughs> well, look, you're a big Ontario and Toronto guy. Nobody loves that more than you. I know that you like to pretend <laughs> that it's me that always wants to talk about that because you don't like getting letters from people in the West or the East saying, why are you always talking about that Toronto-centric nonsense? But uh, these are two big stories. Um, I think the Ford story is... I want to be careful how I say this. Yeah, you're right. Why don't you take? Why don't you take a quick pause? I'll we'll take a break and then we'll come back and we'll deal with it. All right. Because I I, I have no okay. resistance to it. I mean, we spent a lot of time the last month talking about Danielle Smith and a variety of different things that have been happening in Alberta, um, and this obviously did bring things to a standstill. Both the Ford story and the Tory story, the mayor of Toronto story, uh, over the last yeah. couple of days. So. Um, We'll take our, our first break, our only break, and, uh, and then we'll be uh, right back. So uh, stand by. And welcome back. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. And you can find it by uh, looking for the link on my uh, Instagram or Twitter feed. There is no cost to uh, watch us on YouTube. Okay. Um, two stories. Uh, tell me why anybody outside of Toronto should care about the John Tory story. Mayor of Toronto resigns, or says he's going to resign as a result of um, uh, having an affair with a staffer. Um, he hasn't. He, he announced he was going to resign last Friday night. He's staying on to handle a budget situation. Um, but why should anyone outside of Toronto care about this? Well, I don't know that they should. I mean, um, but that doesn't mean that it you know, for a conversation that's about politics and smoke mirrors and the truth that it isn't a relevant topic. He's the mayor of the country's biggest city. Uh, he's been the mayor for a length of time. He's been prominent in Canadian politics for uh, decades. Um, I met John in 1993, I think. Um, and I've seen him uh, be active in politics over that entire period of time, almost, Um you know, in one form or another. And so he's he's been a kind of a big figure um, in in politics. Um, what, what do I find interesting about it? I guess I think there's two things. One is that um, I think it's it, it's clear now that he is exploring the option of unresigning. And uh, I think that's a bad idea. I think that um, the I, the notion that you can on one day stand in front of a camera because a story apparently is coming out that is going to be embarrassing for you and for your family and say, 
I'm going to get in front of this story. I'm going to say this is what it was. This is how to think about it. I've got a lot of work to do to repair trust in my family. And I apologize for uh, doing something that literally any organization that has a code of conduct now, uh, a sophisticated organization, whether it's a city or a corporation, uh, sees as being inappropriate. Um, so I'm going to resign. A few days later, you're allowing the conversation to be, well, well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I, you know, so what happened between then and now? What happened to the work needed to be done with the family? What happened to the idea that he violated something that is uh, is considered inappropriate in literally any workplace that I know? And I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking from a prudish standpoint. People have affairs. People can have consensual relationships. I'm talking about somebody who has a relationship with somebody who works for them, somebody who's at the top of an organization. If this happened in any major corporation, the CEO would resign. It's happened a lot. Um, and that has generally been the consequence of it. So I don't think it's really an option based on uh, to come back after saying you're going to resign, not having actually resigned to say, well, you know what? I thought about it again, and maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought, or maybe on the other hand it was, but there are people who want me to remain as mayor for whatever reason. Um, and so I'm persuaded that the fact that they would like me to remain as mayor is more important than the things that I said were important last week, namely that I violated a principle of how you should conduct yourself if you're um, the head of an organization. And also, I, I I like to think this is not a question for public policy per se. This is more kind of a personal, how do I feel about this? And you're allowed to have feelings about people in positions of trust if you say, I've done something very damaging to my family and I need time to work on that. Take the time to work on that. That's not three days. You know, that's that's longer. So I, I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, there's a story running around that's saying Doug Ford and, and maybe some other politicians are trying to encourage him to stay. Um, we'll see how it plays out. But I think it's a... a, a I don't think that if we sort of take the logical, the, the maybe illogical, but the extension of it, um, how would we feel if every mayor of every major city decided that this was okay behavior or you'd take a three day, three day stint in the penalty box and then all would be forgiven? I don't think that's the right way to deal with a situation like this. Uh, I think there have to be consequences when people uh, cross lines that are considered to be important lines in terms of professional conduct for leaders of organizations. Uh, you Would make you? a very um, convincing argument on that case. I'm, 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 I, and I think it becomes a, kind of this example, you know, for, you know, there are other parts of the country and not just in municipal politics or any politics, but in the, in the private life, I guess, as, uh, as well. Uh, you know, listen, like you, I've known John a long time. I've, I've known since the early 80s when he was a young staffer in Bill Davis's office, the Premier of Ontario. Um, it's a sad story because there's no, there's no question that uh, on a lot of different levels over many years, uh, John Tory has uh, contributed to um, public life and, uh, and public policy. And um, if this is the exit, uh, then uh, so be it. 
Um, but it's uh, it's unfortunate, to say the least, for a lot of people, uh, not just John, uh, but uh, his family right. and, you know, uh, the, the woman involved and everything else. So, um, okay, let's move to the, uh, the other story, uh, Doug Ford. Uh, we have covered on this program a number of times uh, and with Chantel on Good Talk as well, this issue of the uh, the green belt uh, north of Toronto and the move from uh, basically from parkland to develop land, um, and uh, Doug Ford's um, decision and process involved in that particular decision, and it has caused you know a great controversy within uh, within the city and the province. Um, now it turns out that the developers, some of the developers in question around that land, um, bought tickets to attend Doug Ford's daughter's wedding. I think I've got that right. Uh, before yes. the decision was made, which seemed a little odd to have like developers. I don't know how close personal friends they were, but that's not the way it's being described. It's being described as developers attended the party. And they paid ticket. They paid for tickets to get there, and so this has a certain whiff to it. Um, that's uh, that's not good. Doesn't smell good on any level. So that's where we are on that story. Yeah. And uh, your thoughts on it? Well, I think there are a lot of uh, tendrils to this story that deserve more attention and scrutiny. First of all, if the facts as presented are the facts that um, Doug Ford uh, hosted a party to raise money for his daughter's wedding, that people on his behalf, on behalf of the party organizers, encouraged those who were coming to donate $1,000, and that included developers who have business interests that are affected directly by government policy, by Ford um, policy in particular, that on the surface of it, um, he should resign. Um, that's not just not something that you can do. Um, this is, he can say, well, it was for the family or it was for my daughter's wedding and I don't benefit from it, but um, I, I don't think that washes at all. This money that these people came and gave went to help offset a cost that his family was going to incur for a wedding. And at the very least, he should have been cognizant of what that might look like to people. The amounts involved are not insignificant. Um, he might just say, well, you know, whenever we have a party at the Ford uh, Hacienda, everybody is welcome to attend, which is clearly not true. Um, he also said, um, the developers are friends of mine, and it sort of sounds as though uh, in the in the subsequent event where they could all get together, the actual wedding, um, that maybe one or more of those developers sat at a dinner table with him. Given the um, controversy and the sensitivity around his Greenbelt decisions uh, and the acquisition of land by developers in ways that is raising eyebrows and is subject to an investigation for him to stand up last week and say there's nothing to see here and by the way i asked my integrity commissioner and he said a thousand percent this was fine well that raises questions about what kind of an integrity commissioner uh deals in a thousand percent fine uh if you're in that business 
there is no thousand percent fine. There's maybe a hundred percent fine, but there's no like this is so good. It's this is so clean. It's even it goes beyond clean. Well, it's certainly not that. And it turns out that Ford didn't ask for an investigation. He told the integrity commissioner his version of the events. And on the basis of the version of events that Ford gave the integrity commissioner, the integrity commissioner said something. I'm pretty sure he didn't say it's a thousand percent okay. And now the integrity commissioner is not answering questions about this and not indicating that he will answer questions. And so the opposition parties are looking at what they can do, including uh, launching an investigation or calling for an investigation, which would trigger um, a proper stress test of, well, who actually was there? How much did they give? Um, what was the nature of the contact with them to solicit that money? These are all really important things. And to be honest, I don't, I don't think I've seen anything that's sketchier than this. And I've seen quite a lot of sketchy things over the 40 odd years that I've followed politics. Sketchy happens. These are human beings and they make mistakes. And, but I, I, I and I, I've seen some eyebrow raising things, but this is, um, this is pretty bad. Uh, so I really hope that those, those, it's not every journalistic organization that is chasing this story. This is another aspect of it. I, uh, uh, there's there's a, a reasonable amount of speculation that some media organizations who were working on this story tried to bury it. Um, I think we should know a little bit more about that, too. It's it's not as important as the uh, what actually happened with Ford and these developers and that money. But um, we live in a time where we need to wonder with strained resources in journalism if people will chase this story uh, enough or if the premier's strategy is just to wait for the news cycle to turn or to hope that it gets filled up with other uh, stories of interest to people and that eventually public interest in it passes because it shouldn't in us. It really should. You know, it was. What do you uh, make of it? Well, you know, I think there's a, there, there's a reason to be suspicious on a number of fronts about uh, how the story was handled. Uh, last week, it was starting to bubble up um, to a high degree around the the wedding stuff uh, last Thursday night and Friday morning, and then what happened? Well, all of a sudden, the John Tory thing entered the picture. And, you know, they went from one shiny object to another and, you know, the shiny object that involves an affair and sex and all that other stuff took dominance Friday night and through the weekend. And to some degree still today because of this argument about whether or not he should be have resigned by now and like literally got out instead of hanging in, um, which has impacted the story about the wedding tickets and the developers and the green belt and everything else. Uh, so I, I don't know whether certain organizations have deliberately backed off or whether they've just been caught up with a different story, which can happen. It does happen. Um, but at the end of the day, which one's more important? Uh, people will make their judgments on that. Which one's easier to tell? No doubt about that. The easy story to tell, which is often the story that wins out in these kind of things, is the Tory story. 
You know, the John Tory story. Anyway, we're almost out of time. I do want to say uh, on a totally different subject. As uh, you know, any listener to this uh, program will know both you and I have a certain um, attachment to uh, Scotland. And uh, we spent a a lot of time there. Like Scotland a lot, like golf there a lot. Uh, And it's always been interesting while we haven't got involved in the Scottish uh, political story and the the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, the prime minister. Um, She's been a controversial figure uh, for a lot of different reasons and the independence movement and all that. Uh, But she announced today she's resigning. And I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. Not that she hasn't been in some controversy over the last uh, couple of months, and she's a you know she's a hot figure in that sense that uh, she does uh, attach controversy to her and the way she's uh, covered and reported upon. Anyway, she resigned. I watched her statement today, and without getting into all the details as to what may or may not have happened, um, this is the second woman in the last month or so. Uh, with a leadership role on the international stage. Jacinda Ardern from uh, New Zealand was the other who's who's resigned. So you're, you're taking two major players off the stage, major uh, female uh, political leaders off the stage. Um, and I listened to her talk about, you know, this is a woman who three weeks ago said, I've got lots left in the tank. And today she was saying, I don't have very much left in the tank. I've been in politics, one form or another, almost all of my adult life. Uh, elected since I was, she's in her early 50s now, since she was in her mid-20s, been in, in government uh, for the last 15 years, uh, been involved in all kinds of different things. Um, and she said, I just, I, I can't do it anymore. You know, I just, I'm done. And it was interesting, you know, listening to her and wondering that that moment hits all politicians at some point. They just go, you know what, I can't do this. You know, she played the little family card a little bit, but not really a lot. It was more the broader scope of the impact politics has had on her life. And I, I thought that, you know, a lot of people must go through that. And, you know, we in the public often don't kind of appreciate, I think, uh, what goes through a, a person's mind who has devoted their life to public service. You can knock those who spend all their life in politics. You know, there's a, there's some criticism of Pierre Polyev that he doesn't know anything but politics. Um, you know, in some degree, that's, that's the case with her. But... Uh, I just found it interesting listening to her her statement and and this issue of I I got nothing left. Yeah, no, I look. I think you're. I agree with you completely that the toll that politics at the center of uh, of things takes on people is not um, is brutal. Um, and the relatively speaking, on the other side of it, you know, the psychic rewards are really small. Um, there's hardly ever a day when when you wake up in that kind of a role and feel the love of the people that you're working for or the appreciation of it. It just doesn't exist in our in our world. And maybe 
you know, it's it's foolish to even imagine that it should. On the other hand, we do need good people to have put their energy into public service. And if the uh, rewards, and by that I do mean psychic rewards, not monetary rewards, because I don't really think that's the issue. Um, I think it's the it's the sense of um, you're trying to do something that you believe in, um, and it seems like a game of diminishing returns, especially in the era where everybody has an opinion and it's all available for consumption on social media, and most of that is negative most of the time. Uh, it it corrodes your your desire to do it. I think for Nicola Sturgeon as well, it has to be a really difficult time for her in her role, given that such a big part of her project is Scottish independence. And she has been looking for a way to have another referendum on Scottish independence. And it didn't look like she was going to be able to do that. And so, uh, and, and it could just be that um, in the next British election, the likelihood of a Labour government is very high, given the polls, right? They're they're polling 25 points ahead of the Conservatives. Um, that would probably be a government philosophically closer to Nicola Sturgeon's tastes. And then the question of whether or not she really wants to fight for a another independence referendum if there's a Labour government uh, is a different question. It was kind of easier to generate enthusiasm for the independence project with conservatives in charge in London and defending Brexit, whereas Labour um, looks like it's going to be a different kind of government. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, but it also feels to me that if you're campaigning for Scottish independence in a UK that looks at Brexit as having been a bad thing, it's going to make it harder to win that campaign for independence because the nature of the argument is... It's better to break up than to try to work things out, right? So she may just have looked at that road ahead and said, in addition to it being a hard job generally to be a political leader, uh, leader of the government, um, that the projects that she cares the most about, the landscape is changing. And maybe for the better from the standpoint of the things that she really cares about, even if that doesn't mean Scottish independence. Okay. So we've covered uh, we've covered balloons, spy satellites, mayors, premiers, and first ministers. We've done it all. It was a good morning. It was a, it was a good morning. It was a great morning. It was a morning for a hump day. <laughs> all right, my Excellent. friend. We will uh, we'll join forces again with Chantal on uh, on Friday for a good talk. Not Friday and. Till that time, you take care of yourself. And thank you out there for uh, listening on this day. Tomorrow, it's your turn and the ranter. Remember, the ranter last week was after Pierre Polyev. This week, uh, he trains his his machinery against Justin Trudeau. Next week, he'll take on Jagmeet Singh. These are not flattering profiles (laughs) from the ranter, but it is his take on the state of our political leadership these days. That's tomorrow. This has been today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 